Let me uh, tell you where we've been. I'm always aware that people are visiting us and coming in the middle of the story, so it's always good for us to get caught up in the, in the subject matter of a book like 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written to a suffering, scattered, persecuted, dispersed congregation, a group of believers suffering for their confession, and not just like words. This is the kind of thing that we've been talking about, the tangible, lived-out confession of life. So Christians... Confessing Jesus is Lord, living as if he's Lord, and the world is after them for that position, so they're scattered. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them and exhort them. And we've seen this already, but let me just remind you, he, he tells this church about this living hope, this inheritance that God is guarding, the one that won't spoil or perish or fade. This, this faith is yours and it's real and it can't be snatched from you. He writes this letter to exhort the church to chase hard after Christ, to uh, submit to one another in love, to be holy, to prepare our minds for action, to abstain from sin, he says. And last week we started in the middle of, we got to the middle of chapter three, and Peter's instructing the church specifically on this subject how to suffer for doing it right. <laughs> like suffering for failure, suffering for sin is a natural ongoing consequence. But when Christians who love Christ more than anything else, who live intentionally with that faith, Peter writes, okay, when you suffer for doing right, here's, the, here's what you need to focus on. And he confronts one particular reality for us, and that is how we respond to things we feel we don't deserve. That's when the worst comes out of us, what well, comes out of me. If I feel like I'm being unjustly persecuted for doing right, I'll get defensive. And so Peter writes some, some instructions to this suffering church. He says, all right, here's, here's what you do. Live in harmony with one another. I want you to be sympathetic and compassionate towards each other and, and leave room for vengeance with God. Don't you take that vengeance. All those things that really come naturally to uh, to us in the midst of feeling like people aren't treating us fairly, Peter instructs just the opposite. And he gets us to verse 18. That's where we were last week. Um, Verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Before I read it, I want to put a disclaimer on this. Obviously, some passages in the scriptures that we study are more difficult than others. Many, many great men have called this the most difficult of all passages. Uh, Martin Luther said this about this text, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament. So that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it and there has been no one ever who could explain it. So if Martin Luther says that, I've got no shot. So let's just go home and call it a day. Um, No, I'm going to try my best to give you What I think the text is saying, give you some open-handed options, what I think is the most difficult part of this passage, but I want us to get kind of the bird's eye view of what Peter's trying to say. This whole few verses are all about encouraging suffering Christians. So just remember, put that over everything. What he's saying is to fan faith and courage in the midst of suffering, and it will help our interpretation. So I've taken the liberty to connect verse 17 to the rest of the text. We've already dealt with 17. And if, you're, if your Bible is a, does paragraph breaks, you'll notice that the paragraph break is at verse 18. But I'm going to tell you why we connect 17 to it. Um, and and, and let's, let's read it and I'll explain. Starting in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good. 
if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Here's, here's why I'm connecting verse 17 to the rest of the passage, because he is going on in verse 18 to talk about why it's better to suffer for doing good. So he makes the statement in verse 17, it's better to, do, to suffer for doing good. Everything else is, well, why, why, Peter? That makes no sense to me. And he gives us what I think are four big picture reasons why it's better to suffer for doing good. Here's the very first one he mentions in verse 18. The gospel brings us to God. I, I don't know if you're looking for concise gospel passages. Verse 18 is the most concise one I know of in all of Scripture. Everything you want to tell somebody or know about the hope of Christ and the accomplishment of Jesus on behalf of sinners is all packed into this one verse. So if you're a highlighter, if you like to circle your text, circle verse 18 and say, most concise gospel. And if you can memorize this verse, you can tell anybody the picture of Jesus and salvation. So let me unpack what Peter is saying again to the suffering church, telling them that, that the gospel brings us to God and why it's such a hopeful thought. Here's the first thing he says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. That word suffered in many manuscripts says died. In fact, the NIV uses the word died instead of suffered there, so it could be reread, for Christ died once for sins. You got to remember where this whole thing starts. Jesus wasn't a victim. He wasn't taken advantage uh, of by the system. He was not martyred. No one took Jesus' life. He willingly laid down his life. He came on a rescue mission for sinners. He left heaven, took on flesh, and went to the cross intentionally with you and me in mind. It's radically different than a victim of somebody's um, hatred. He wasn't submitting himself to man's will. He was submitting himself to God's will, coming to save sinners. Not the possibility, but the certainty. You understand? There are many people out there who claim uh, this Jesus, all he did was provide the window of opportunity. Now the rest is up to you. Peter makes it really, really clear. Jesus came for the certainty of your salvation. He, he died for his people. He laid down his life as a covering for, for us. And we're going to talk about that in a little more. That's the first part that Peter mentions. But I want you to notice the second part. For Christ also died once for sins. Second thing you need to notice is that it was a once and for all payment. Now, the Jewish mindset, the people that Peter writing to clearly understood the sacrificial system. It was burned into their minds. Here was their, here was their life. Priests would offer sacrifices every day to serve to pay for sins for man. And the problem is they'd wake up the next day and start the process all over again. They were always offering sacrifices every day. The cleansing was temporary, but the sin stain was permanent. Get it? 
So for a Jewish mindset, for Peter to say, hey, not only has he died, but it was a once and for all finished accomplishment for you, just slammed into, oh, I've got to clean it up. I've got to clean it up. I've got to clean it up. Today, I've got to go sacrifice. Today, I've got to do these things. And so what makes the atoning sacrifice of Jesus so different to the, Jew, the, the Jews of the day and to any other religion in the world is that it's by grace and it's final and it's complete. God is satisfied. Do you see? Shake your head if you say, yeah, amen. The once, once Jesus' sacrifice was offered, there were no more sacrifices needed to be made. It is finished. Let me give you a passage you can just write down. I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see the contrast? There are many who offer goats and and rams and heifers for a temporary daily covering. Jesus died, shed his own blood for an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Somebody should have said amen right there. We're talking about a righteous robe covering for you that settles the distance between holy God and sinful man. Everything else that man offers is a ladder climbing your way out of your pit, and it just falls short. That's what the scriptures say. It can't reach it, can't get there. And so Peter, encouraging a suffering church, says, Jesus died intentionally for you. He paid a permanent price for you. It is settled for you. So everything that you're used to, having to get up the next day and work for it and try for it and suffer the angst about it, it's over because of what Jesus has done. Get it? See why I'm saying it's the most concise picture of the gospel? Now Peter goes on and says, let me tell you how this is possible. Look at it in verse um, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the, what's the next word? Just or righteous. That's the key word there. How is this once and for all covering possible? Because Jesus was righteous. The reason why sacrifices, especially for the Jews, these blood sacrifices of animals don't matter, is they don't last, is because they're animal sacrifices. There need to be a payment of su- such sufficient worth to cover for all time and eternity God's people. Jesus was righteous. The only sacrifice that could ever finally and fully pay for sin would be the sinless sacrifice of such value that millions and millions and millions and millions of sinners can be covered perfectly and completely and permanently in Christ. He was righteous. We've talked about this before. That It's kind of a theology word, but don't be afraid of it. Imputation. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. The Bible says, I'm such a sinner, I don't even know how much of a sinner. In fact, the best things I can do are like sin to God. So we've got a serious problem. And God says somehow in the scriptures that he can take my sin and transfer it to Jesus as he's dying. And so that God is fully satisfied by that death for my sin. He also takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and transfers it somehow to me. So that when God sees me, he sees righteousness. Do you see? If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if he was just a good man, if he was a prophet, if he wasn't God, he would be dead, 
like we will die and no permanent forever payment for sin. We're stuck. But Jesus was God. He did live a perfect life. And that perfect righteousness is now ours by faith in Christ alone. There you go. You're learning. Okay. One last thing I want you to notice in this amazing verse, and that is that the price was paid in full. And I have to say this because sometimes people are okay with Jesus in the declaration of him dying for sins, but, but are confused about the fullness of the, of the payment. Because some people treat it as if it was just a down payment. Now you're on the hook for the rest. I mean, Jesus opened the door of possibility. Now you, with your wisdom and understanding, you kind of work your way through it and maintain it and hold on to it. And, and what Peter says loud and clear here is that Jesus didn't just get us close. He got us holy. He transforms us. He changes our destination. He changes us on the inside. My soul that was at once at war with God is now made alive to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit. He didn't just get us close. He brought us all the way home. He gave us his holy life. We are, now get this. We are as holy as Jesus because of his righteous robes. It's amazing. So if you're a suffering church, if you really are having people hate your convictions and hate your lifestyle and hate your Lord, do you think this isn't the most or the biggest first step in encouraging you to suffer well for doing right? Because it's so certain. Everybody else is trying to work their way out of their mess or define their mess in different terms that don't make it look like a mess, but it is a mess. Jesus is the solution. And he says, and I want you to get this part in the middle of the verse, that he might bring us to God. Jesus died. He paid the full price, fully paid, fully covered, fully righteous for one reason, to bring you to God, not to religion, not to a little temporary hope, not to a happier life, not for temporary things. Jesus did all this to get you where? To God. And sinners, all of us, have always had this problem apart from Christ. The distance between God and me is, is an un, unreachable distance on my own. And Jesus did all this to get me there. And if I'm a suffering saint and my life is this little snapshot of years in comparison to eternity, 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 forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, I realize what Jesus did to bring me to that moment, that little pixel called suffering, little thing that doesn't even make a picture in my life, it's easy to get perspective, right? It's easy to get perspective there. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But I get back and go, wow, look what he did to bring me to himself. That's a great powerful way to start. Now let's move on. The second point that I think Peter, Peter makes to a suffering church is this, that there's victory for Christ and his followers. And this is the part of the passage that gets a little sketchy. My wife, when I described it to her, said, that's creepy, so hang on for creepy. Um, <laughs> let's read it together. I, let me ask you a question. How many of you actually studied this passage before? Spent some time, a few of us have. So you understand the complexities of this. But Let's, go, let's read it and let's ask some questions and make some observations. Verses 19 and 20. Well, let's, let's back up. Let's read 18 again to get it in context. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Um, let me deal with a couple of obvious questions. When did Jesus go to this prison? Timing is important here. Who were these spirits in prison that Jesus went to? And what did he proclaim? So there, there's real simple verse, really easy to read, but there's a lot of questions that come out of it. So we're going to try to answer the when, the who, and the what in this passage. Let me say right up front, uh, I spent the first uh, two days of my study just reading hundreds of pages. Nobody agrees. <laughs> They're all over the map on this one. Um, I would say if you back up about 500 years, there was almost a universal interpretation of this passage, and, and I'll tell you what that is in a minute. But, but of the last 500 years, it's pretty complex. And so I don't want to say, trust me, I, I figured it out. Um, there are a lot of brighter uh, men than I am, but I will try my best to present to you what's going on here in these, the options. Um, Let's limit our discussion to the three main interpretations of this passage or the positions on this passage, and, and obviously which one you take defends, uh, will define how you answer some of these questions. So the first of all is the who part of this. There, uh, some would say that Christ went to Hades, went to hell, went to prison in that passage uh, during the time between his death and resurrection, and he spoke to Noah's contemporaries. So the people living around Noah during his day when he's building the ark for all those years and years and years, these people who rejected rejected God's vision, picture of redemption, and consequence for sin, those people that were rejected, that Jesus left the cross after he died, before he rose, and went there and said something, okay? That's one position. And, and I always know that some people aren't familiar with some of the Old Testament stories, so let me just give you a quick snapshot, even though hopefully you know the Noah story. Noah was a man who lived uh, a long, long time ago. Genesis 6 tells us the story of Noah. And, and specifically, God looks at the earth during Noah's day, and it's messed up. And now you might go, well, we're messed up. God could say that today. No, something so drastically different between even what we know today and that day. In fact, here's what God said in Genesis 6, 5. He looked at the earth, saw that the wickedness of men's heart. And he said, every, get this, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, I've run into a couple of nice people even this week. So clearly that doesn't apply as bad as it is to our circumstance today. Something was so messed up in the hearts of men at the time that God decided to say, and by the way, I noticed, I noticed Noah, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and I'm going to deal with that sin. And so God said, the consequence is coming. I'm going to wipe them all off the earth. I'm going to bring a flood. And no, I want you to do this. I, because you found favor, your wife will be saved, your sons will be saved, and their wives will be saved, and you need to take two of every kind of animal. I want you to build this ship, this ark. It's going to be 450 feet long and 50 feet high and 70 feet wide, and I want you to put all those things in the ship, and I'm going to flood the earth and kill everything and redeem only you and start over. Now, that's the story of, of Noah. And somehow, Peter, in his description of being encouraging to a suffering church, just drops that story right here in the middle. I was reading a, a particular author this week, and he said, you know, to preachers, if you have to illustrate your illustrations, don't use them. They're not helpful. <laughs> so Peter didn't use an illustration he thought no one would understand. He wrote one he knew his people would understand. There wasn't any argument. They got it. We don't get it. We're missing some of the context and the, and the proximity to the time in which he wrote. 
but it's here. And so Peter just assumed that they would understand clearly the argument that's going on for him. And that is, and that, is that you want encouragement, suffering church? Well, then this, look what, see what Jesus did. This idea of victory, not only for himself, but for you, his followers. And I think that's his main point. So just keep that in, in mind as, as we move forward. So the first option was that, that Jesus left the cross after his death, before his resurrection, went to Hades to preach to the contemporaries of Noah. The second most popular option was that, um, that Noah was really a pre-incarnate Christ. It was like a theophany that Jesus was speaking to that day, in Noah's day. And he was declaring, repent, and I'm done with sin. And that's not a very popular one, not, not the most popular, but it's one of the top three. Here's the third one. And this is the creepy part my wife reacted to. The third one is, is uh, this group of interpreters say that Christ proclaimed his victory in Hades to demons. And uh, that, in first uh, blush, isn't that creepy, but let me add to the, the point here. Um, these interpreters would look at that phrase, spirits in prison, do you see, um, in verse 19, and draw their attention to, t- there's more than just three, but three main supporting passages. So let me just read these to you, and I'll, I'll tell you what they what they say if it doesn't make it crystal in this. The first one I want to read is, is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Same writer, same theme, Peter writing to a suffering church. And he uses this story. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, the ungodly. Then he goes on and says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen. Now I'll come back to that in just a second. Jude Verses 6 and 7 is another key passage for these folks. And this is what it says. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He was he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. One, one last one, Genesis chapter 6. This is the Noah story, and this is where it starts. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, key phrase, we'll come back to that, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and, as, and also for afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man and the, that was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man, animals, and creeping things, the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let me uh, tell you this interpretation, at least from these boys' vantage point. Fallen angels, according to Genesis 6 and Jude and, and also 2 Peter, somehow took on flesh. They possessed men and had, had relationships with human women to create some kind of super race, according to Genesis 6. Um, these interpreters would say that that's why sin increased to such a degree that God was done with people of the earth. 
Many would say it was their attempt to thwart the coming of the Messiah Redeemer to get in the bloodline and mess up what God was planning to do in redemption. Um, That's where they would go. They would also point to the phrase sons of God used in in Genesis where that phrase is never ever used for men. It's only ever used for angels. And, And describing sons of God, angels, saw that the the women of men were beautiful, and they came together. Um, So they would say that God has limits even for demons, and these demons crossed the line, and according to Jude, had crossed the line of natural order and cohabitated with women. And according to these, they would say it was the ultimate act of depravity that God said, I'm done. It's over. I'm ending everything. And it happened for such a period of time that it infected the entire race rather than Noah and the few that God found favor with. See why my wife said it was creepy? You hanging in there? Anyway, that's the interpretation. Those are the basic uh, main options to the who. But also, depending upon which one you pick, depends upon the when. So if, they, if Noah um, is a pre-incarnate Christ, then the when is happening in Noah's day. If it's the other two options, it's actually between the death and resurrection of Christ when he went. Now, let's deal with what I think is Peter's thrust here. And I don't want you to get caught up in trying to define who. Peter's thrust is victory. It is the word proclaimed in verse 19. Do you see it? Jesus went, which he went to and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh, the word proclaim means announced. It means herald. This is the most important word, I think, in Peter's illustration because something big has just happened. Whoever these spirits in prison are... Jesus said something to them. Um, if you go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 12, there's another use of the word preached or announced that Peter uses. Uh, it was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced, there it is, to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is saying early on in this letter that there was a proclamation of a saving, salvific gospel. There was a truth that was being told that you could respond to, right? That's chapter 1, verse 12. What he uses here in chapter 3, verse 19, is the word proclaimed that has nothing to do with your response. It's a definitive announcement. It's a declaration. Jesus went there not to be winsome or to invite someone to reconsider hope and reconsider him and damnation. He went there to declare a victory, just to make a statement, not to give an option. In fact, there have been many people who would look at this passage and, uh, and, and say that Christ was giving them an offer of salvation, a second chance. I mean, there are many people who believe that somehow death isn't the final issue. But Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, makes it really clear, just as man is destined to die and after that to face judgment. When you die, your decisions are sealed. Who you are, where you're going, who your Lord is, is determined. There isn't a second chance once you die. I don't care who says that to you. And so those there are people who would take that passage and say, well, see, Jesus is down there. He's preaching the good news to people in prison. Come with me. And that's not the case. He's declaring something to them. So whoever they are, he's not asking them to reconsider. He's showing up to declare a victory. This is a huge point to understand. If you're a suffering, persecuted church for doing right, you need to know what Peter is saying. There is victory. Not just for Jesus, but for all of his followers. 
his victory is our victory. Amen? So if you take the position, that third position that I described to you, that these are demons who tried to thwart the coming of the Redeemer Messiah. These are demons who, who increased the level of evil on the planet to such a degree that God had to wipe out humankind. Then you can get this picture too, that I would imagine at Jesus' death, wherever this Hades place is where these spirits are locked in prison, they're throwing kind of a party. Hey, it's over. We, we win. Because they only know what they're told. But guess who shows up? Not Satan with the keys. Jesus. And he said, what you tried to stop, I just finished. What you thought was the end, I just made possible through my, my death and my sacrifice. So he declares victory over Satan, sin, and death. So I, I look at it from that vantage point and say, well, isn't that awesome? If that's how it's supposed to be interpreted, and Peter's trying to encourage or fan the flame of like weak need believers in the midst of suffering, man, that's a good note. That's a good news story right there. You mean that no matter how it goes here, even Jesus' death wasn't a final blow. It was a victorious one. Is that ours? Is that ours? Of course it is. And that was Peter's point, I think. So let me move on to the third point uh, I think that Peter tries to use to encourage this church, and that is um, in verses 20 and 21, that God's salvation is certain and it's gracious. He says this, let me back up again. Jesus went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through, through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection uh, of Jesus. I want you to notice the first word, important to me, in verse 20, and that's the word patience. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. How patient? You know the Noah story? A long time. 100 years or so? Noah out there swinging at a boat that nobody knew they needed. Nobody saw rain. Nobody knew what a flood was. Talking about repentance, talking about God's authority, talking about God's wrath for sin. And he's just swinging his hammer and his boys are looking like fools like he is. How patient was God? Is God impulsive? I am. I'm going to bring you close into my life, okay? Just don't do this. You hit me here, I'm impulsive. I don't know what it is. It's been that way my whole life. I start throwing blows. You bump me in the nose. I could love you. You could be my wife. I'm just swinging. You hit me in the nose. That's how it happens. Some people think God's like that. Like he just has this trigger somewhere in him. You cross that line and he just gets just tenacious and angry. Our God is a patient, benevolent, kind, gracious, slow to anger God. He waited in the days of Noah. Some people think the story of Noah is about a boat. <laughs> it's about a sermon. The sermon lasted 100 years. Repent. God doesn't want to destroy you. Repent. Repent. Peter also says here in this verse that eight were saved through water, and it symbolizes baptism that saves. Now, some people would take this as, I see, baptismal regeneration, that you've got to be baptized to be saved. And, and I, I know they use this text as an argument. The problem is they ignore most of the text that don't. So um, I want to just give you a little support passage so that you can put it on your, uh, on your notes today if you're interested. 
Um, all over the New Testament, salvation is seen as a, a work of faith that God grants to man and he responds, period. Now, baptism is an obedient reaction to declare the work that God has already done. It's not a saving work. Do you understand? Uh, Peter, who's writing this, this text for us, has a story in chapter 10 of Acts. Um, he is preaching to the Gentiles, clueless, outside the story of redemption and sin and all that, but, but Peter is imploring them about Christ and their need for salvation. And he tells this story. Verse 44, while Peter was still uh, saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone then withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, you see the sequence? Belief, faith, gifts respond to baptism, not baptism, then all the work. And so this is directly talking about where salvation comes from. Peter is saying to this group of people the work that God has done, where it comes from, and how how it changes us specifically. So the water doesn't save us, does it? any more than the water saved Noah, right? Get it? It was Noah's faith in the promise of God to build a boat, to get on a boat that saved him. It is our faith in the promise of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that saves us. By faith alone, by grace alone, period. Add nothing to it. You don't put religion in it. You don't put good works in it. You don't put baptism in it. You don't church attendance. You don't do knowledge. You, you simply come by faith. It's, it's a message of hope to every sinner. So I, I, uh, when I was writing this stuff down on Thursday, I stopped and I said, well, I got to talk to somebody here today. And I'm always aware that some, some of you who come, who've come for weeks and some maybe for months, maybe for years, who are totally outside of the kingdom of God. And it would be an abs- it would be malpractice for me not to t- stop and talk to you this morning a little bit. I think we're in a similar situation today as we were in Noah's day. Not, not in the sense that we're as bad as we possibly could be and God's gonna wipe us off the planet. But some of you have heard the hope, the message of Christ for so long and you won't listen. And I want you to know, as benevolent and patient and kind as God is, there is a day coming. Do you understand? That you, you, you have no idea if Jesus is coming back tomorrow or you're driving home this afternoon and get hit by a bus and it's over. And the moment you die, you stand before the judgment of God and there is no backing up. You can sit here and say, I don't quite get it. It doesn't tumble together for me. I'm not certain I want to commit to it. It means too much. It cramps my style too much. The most loving thing I can say to you is the same thing Noah was saying for 100 years to the the people around him. God, his patience is wearing out and his grace is true and it's available to you. You come not fixing yourself. You come simply as you are. You confess, which is simply a, a, a phrase that describes you stop arguing with God. You, you, you know he knows you. He knows all of you. And you don't try to pretend that you're different than you are. You just say, I am a sinner. 
And when you come with that brokenness, poor in spirit or happy, according to Jesus and Matthew, when you come broken like that, not fixed, not righteous, not churchy, you come broken, God provides grace. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone and you will be saved. Maybe not saved from the consequences of your stupid decisions or the lifestyle you've led, but saved from eternal punishment, saved from hopeless living. You'll be saved from that. So if you've been sitting here for the last couple of months, years or whatever, if you're a husband of a wife or a wife of a husband who's dragging you here and you go, I'm just tolerating this, Jesus is talking to you right now. He's saying, come, come. Your life is an example of how much you need in Christ. And you can believe because God is patient and long-suffering. It's just not eternal. Do you understand? Amen. One last point that Peter makes to a suffering church, again, an encouragement, that Christ is already reigning. Good news, he's already reigning. Verse 22, who has gone, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is great news for a suffering church. This Jesus was sent by God. He provided his life for our forgiveness. He rose from the dead, defeated and was victorious over sin and death and Satan. And now he's at heaven. He's sitting in a place of honor and he has all authority. Everything is in subjection to him. So if it really is better to suffer well for doing right, it's because he is in control. He is sovereign. There isn't anything happening to your little life that he isn't completely over or allowing. He is sovereign. He's in control. He is reigning, according to Peter here in verse 22. So remember back in verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good. Why why is it better, Peter? Why is it better? You keep saying that. Well, because the gospel brings you to God. Because there's victory for Christ and all of his followers. It's certain. I don't care how you feel right now because God's salvation is certain and it's gracious and Jesus is already reigning. So I don't care what you're going through. These things are certain and they're permanent. You get it? So what do you, what do you drag away from a message like this? How do these verses help us in our suffering? Well, they remind us, first of all, that our suffering may not seem like it might seem out of control to us, but it's not out of control to Jesus. Isn't that how suffering feels? It's chaos. It's got no answers. It hurts. And you spend more time crying. It's just overwhelming, and it might seem like it's out of control, but Jesus sits on the throne with all things in submission to him, even your suffering. Your suffering is under his thumb. Do you get it? Another thing we can take from this and help us in our suffering is that we can endure well because of the all-consuming love of Christ. Because of the all-consuming love of Christ, his intentional death, his once and for all payment, and his paid in full, nothing can separate us from the love of God kind of love. Let me read you something you are aware of. Paul says this. Just listen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or or persecution or, or famine or nakedness danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Amen. We can endure because of the all-consuming love of Christ. And one last thing, we should endure well because God is telling his salvation story through our lives. The reason why Peter brings up this, the illustration of Noah, because Noah had to live this salvation story out in front of the entire world that rejected him. And we, suffering saint, are out there living our life in front of a lost and dying world, and we're telling the salvation story to them every time we live our life. And maybe this conversation that we're supposed to have with them starts with their eyes. Maybe they watch you going through it. Something that everybody would whine about, everyone would try to get out of, and they watch you do it with joy and trust and faith. And they look at that and go, now I've got to ask you, now where is that coming from? And you get to tell them, Jesus, right? The saving story of Christ. Maybe that conversation starts with their eyes watching us. So it is better to suffer for doing right, amen? Let's pray. There is no way, God, that, that this stuff, like suffering and, and doing it well and for some other reason, is natural at all. Just the conversation proves to us that it is a supernatural discussion that requires the Holy Spirit to work in us. So we, we confess that. We confess our need um, for him and his work in our life. We confess sometimes that it's hard for us to believe every second, but God, we're also overwhelmed that there isn't anything, even our unbelief, that can separate us from your love. God, I pray for those in this room who might be wrestling with just faith. Like, do they believe in Jesus? Do they see themselves as sinners? God, would your spirit open their eyes right now? to believe and be saved. For us as your children, God, we thank you for suffering. We thank you for the picture it is of you, your control, your power, and our future because of the finished, victorious work of Jesus. Amen.